Amen. Thank you, Sergio. Today we will be in Matthew 8. We'll be in Matthew 8. Um, most of you know uh, my family and I, um, but for those who we do not yet have the privilege of knowing, um, we were able to be a part of um, the, the founding family, um, family core team that helped plant CBC five years ago, almost five years ago. I guess in October it'll be official. Um, and we're just so privileged to, to be here. Um, last year, by God's grace, after seven years, we finished the MDiv degree, degree at the Master's Seminary. And um, as many of you know, we're now preparing to move our family to the country of Albania. It was uh, 10 years ago, while serving in Uganda, that uh, Molly and I, um, we were in a short-term capacity, and it was in that capacity the Lord embedded in our hearts the desire to reach the least reached with the gospel and to make disciples among, among those lands. And um, that's actually what drove us through seminary and uh, kept us in seminary and kept the light at the end of the tunnel through seminary. And we're so thankful uh, that the Lord is now directing our steps to Albania. And um, we're very privileged that CBC is our sending church, and we have actually other churches that are also coming on board, that are part of our partnership team. Um, and we'll be visiting many of those churches um, in the upcoming months. So if we're not here on a week or Sunday, it's not because we forgot to come or because we don't love you guys. It's because we're probably at another church. So please, um, please pray for us uh, as, as we're kind of in this process. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be um, in Albania by January of this next year. That's, that's the prayer and the goal. And we're still adding to our partnership, our monthly partnership team. So if you want to know more about that, we would love to have you over for dinner, or we'd love to have you for dinner anyway, um, but we'd love to hang out with you, and we're just thankful to be counted as um, part of the CBC family. It's a real privilege for us. Um, well, enough of that. Um, today, we're continuing our summer series, and our summer series, I almost said it's the parables, but it's not the parables, and it's not Psalms. This year, we're, this summer, we're going through the miracles of Jesus. And our, our pastor, Patrick, has just finished going through John, I believe. Uh, Ruth is next up that he's going to be going through in the fall. Um, but we have the privilege of looking at the miracles of Jesus this summer. Today, we're focusing on Jesus' healing of the centurion's servant from Matthew 8. As you turn to Matthew 8 and find your spot, Matthew 8, verse 5, I just want to ask you, have you ever felt in a situation, felt out of place in a situation. Um, I gave the example earlier of being shorts in the worship service, or not having shorts and being out of place. Um, there was another time I felt very out of place, and it was uh, when my sisters were, I was a teenager, and my sisters were in ballet. They were in ballet programs and um, very active in ballet, and I wasn't. Uh, I may have been when I was very young, but I tried to destroy the pictures of those. Um, <laughs> But by this time in my life, when I was a teenager, um, being with leotards and um, tights and all these things like that—that was—that was not—that was, not, uh, was not my cup of tea. You know, that wasn't what I liked to do. But my mom uh, signed me up to help and be a stagehand and an extra. And so I'm with all the dads 
you know, they're helping these little girls running around and, and doing the thing. And I felt very out of place, and uh, I felt weird, and, um, and I should have, right? And that, that, was, that was good. Well, that's kind of a, a funny example, kind of a dumb example, but um, if you can step back with me in your mind to the first century, and step back, and if you can imagine what it was like to be a part of the Roman army, uh, this was the most powerful military in the world, the most powerful military might. They had conquered the known world at that time. Imagine that you had delegated authority. You had authority over at least 100 soldiers. They would do whatever you said. Whatever whim you had, whatever command you gave, they would do it. Kill that guy, they would go kill him. Arrest that guy, they would go arrest him. Whatever you said, they would do it in a second. Imagine that you were placed in Israel. It was remote in the, in the Roman Empire. It was out of the way. Um, it was uh, a place that, that people didn't really want to be stationed. And uh, you were stationed there. You were stationed in the city of Capernaum, which is um, on the, the north side, northwest side of um, the Sea of Galilee. And you were there to help protect key trade routes. You're also there to keep the peace. You're kind of a, a military policeman. Kind of, kind of like that. Um, the Jewish people were seen as a conquered people by the Romans. They were uh, under the constant, the constant rule, rule, and they were often looked down upon. They were seen as inferior, kind of inferior people in the Roman Empire. It was seen as a land that had strange customs, worshipped a strange god, uh, had a strange history. They, they, were, they were strange it was a land of zealots and weirdos. That's what they would have thought. In this land, you as a Roman captain, you would have the natural inclination to think, along with your superiors, your subordinates, your fellow officers, you would have the inclination to think, man, these people, you know, looking down on them as well, maybe even despising them, maybe even despising the people you were placed with you would struggle with the same things that John the Baptist instructed the soldiers. Do you remember in Luke 3, 14, when the soldiers came to John the Baptist? Do you remember? This is what they, they, they came to him and said, what, what should we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So as a Roman officer, you would be, or a Roman soldier, you would be struggling with low wages You'd have the power to take by force. Nobody could do anything about it. And you would have your word be the authority, even if you were speaking falsely. So even if you were speaking falsely, your word would have authority. And can you imagine if then, that's just a regular soldier, if you were then a leader of soldiers, leader, leader of, of many, many soldiers. This kind of set the, sets the stage and sets us up for the healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, if you, you then take that, that mindset and look with me at uh, Matthew 8, verse 5, we'll read through verse 13. Okay, this is God's word. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, 
and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that um, we get to see the power of Jesus working. And we know that uh, the, same, the same power is the power that uh, has saved us, that has drawn us to yourself, that we have a relationship with you. So we're just so thankful that, um, that we have been healed from our sins. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would open, open your word to our hearts, help us to know your word, help us to understand your word, but help us to be doers of your word today. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we will see two different healings. Um, there are two miracles. We're going to see this in our passage. Uh, first is the giving of physical life to a dying man. And second, it's the giving of saving faith to a Gentile soldier. Uh, this narrative, it can be broken into three sections. So if you're taking notes this morning, here are the three sections. Uh, the servant's plight, so in verses 5 through 7, here's my acronym. Servant's plight, the soldier's faith, verses 8 through 9, and the Savior's action, verses 8 through 13. So first we're going to look at the, the section 5 through 7, verses 5 through 7, in the servant's plight and when Jesus entered Capernaum, when Jesus entered Capernaum, if you flip back to Matthew 4, just a few pages, probably in your Bible, Matthew 4, verse 14, this is the first mention of Capernaum by Matthew. Um, Jesus has, at this point, been baptized by John the Baptist. He's then gone into the wilderness. He's been tempted for the, the well, 40 days, 40 nights without eating. Then he was tempted, right, by Satan. And then in verse 12, we pick it up right after the temptation of Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So, although our, our Lord, he, did, he didn't have a place to lay his head, did he? He didn't have, he didn't have a, a home like you and I would have. Um, this was kind of a base of operations. This is a place where a lot of his disciples were called in Capernaum. This is a place where it was right by the sea. It was a, a, the Sea of Galilee, a seaport um, village. And, um, but it was an important village. It, it, was, it was a town. It was a city. Um, that there was even a Roman garrison placed there. And so this, this was an important place. Um, if, you, if you go um, kind of flip uh, 10 verses later and you look at um, verse 23, uh, Jesus was going. This is the beginning of his ministry. This is what he was doing. He was going throughout all of Galilee, 
teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease and every kind of sickness from among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw the crowds, so in verse in chapter 5, when he saw the crowds, what did he do? He went up on the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he preached the Sermon on the Mount. So verse chapters 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. And then right after that, Jesus then finished, and the people were amazed. It says in in chapter 7, verse 28. They were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? They were amazed because he taught with one, as one with authority. He had authority. He had authority not only over diseases, he had authority over nature. He also had authority because he was the word of God and he preached the word of God. That was the authority. And then in 8, verse 1, Jesus came down from the mountain. These large crowds were still following him. This is when the leper bowed down to him, and with a touch, he healed the leper, and he healed him. And then Jesus was going to his destination. He entered Capernaum. As he entered Capernaum, he was approached by the centurion. A centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, My servant is lying paralyzed, fearfully tormented. My servant. This word here... Uh, um, it's thrown at some people for a loop because it's, it's not a normal word for, for slave doulos. It's not, it's not a normal word for servant. It's actually used at times to even your son. Like if I was to, to refer to my sons, I, would, I could use this term. Um, it was an enduring term. It was a term that could be used for a servant. Um, and this is how it's used at this time. Uh, we know that this servant was highly regarded by the centurion. There's a parallel passage to our passage in Luke 7. And in Luke 7, verse 2, um, he says, the centurion says, he, well, it's not the centurion in that place. It's, um, it's just the narrator, I believe, that says, wow, he's highly regarded. He's highly regarded. This is a very important uh, servant. Well, he did his work well, obviously. He, he worked very hard for the centurion. The centurion also cared deeply about the servant, as we're going to see. This, this centurion, he comes and he gives the situation. He just states the facts. He says, he says my servant is lying paralyzed. He's fearfully tormented. Most of the times, as we look at Jesus' healings throughout the Gospels, we see, we see, what do we see happening? Jesus going to, making house calls to everybody's house? Is that what he's doing? He's, he's a doctor, he's coming? No, not at all. He's just, he's going and he's teaching, he's proclaiming the Gospel, and what's happening? People are bringing, they're constantly bringing the sick to Jesus. Or he's walking past a blind man, boom. Or the, the leper seeks him out, hey, He's coming down from the mountain. This is my chance. I'm going to come. Um, even, even the paralyzed. Do you remember when we studied a few weeks ago? They cut the hole in the roof. And the, the guy that can't even come himself is brought. And he's dropped down the roof, right? For Jesus to heal him. This man, this servant, can't even be brought. 
If he's brought, he'll probably die. He can't even be moved. He's fearfully tormented. He's in bad shape. He's in really bad shape. Um, we're told that he's in great pain. He's suffering greatly. In Luke, we're told that he's near death. It's a dire illness. Dire illness. What caused this illness? Did he fall? Did he have, did he have an aneurysm? Did he have a stroke? Did he have a major accident? We aren't told. We don't know. We don't know exactly what happened. We only have his symptoms. We'd actually have to ask some of the medical professionals in the room what they think the diagnosis is, because we don't know. We don't know what the, what's going on here. But we do know that it's a dire situation. Can you imagine, uh, as, uh, as our dear pastor says, uh, can you imagine in your sanctified imagination, can you imagine you know, donkeys pulling over to the side of the road, people getting out of the way, the centurion's coming with his sirens on his horse, you know, he's coming through, <laughs> right? He's coming, he's coming to Jesus. Um, it's an emergency. Um, but he wasn't actually the first one that came to Jesus. In Luke, it tells us that the leaders of the Jews first came. So the leaders came, and then the centurion's friends came, and then the centurion came. Um, the, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, why did they come? Well, they came because the centurion feared God, and he, he loved the nation, which is shocking in and of itself because centurions and Romans didn't love the nation. So that's, and, and here, here these guys are coming. He also built their synagogue. The, he built it. So, I don't know, like, the guy, I mean, he must have inherited wealth, he had wealth, but, you know, Roman officers, probably that wouldn't be the first thing to do, you know, build a church, that probably wouldn't be the first thing, right? But that's what he does in this foreign land. He invested his money to, in a place to worship God, and to the point that he could ask the Jewish leaders, and they would run for him ahead and talk to Jesus, imploring him. Well, who else went to Jesus? Well, the centurion's friends. Now, some people get confused. Uh, they think that um, the, the passage in Luke, uh, that that is the friends speaking, and then our passage here in Matthew 8 is really just the friends again. It's just the friends. This is just one. I, I would just argue like, this, is, this is probably not the case. Um, it's not too hard to imagine that, that uh, even though in Luke Luke 7-7, um, seven, seven, the centurion's friends, they say, they do say, the centurion says he's not worthy to come to you, Jesus. That the centurion actually did come. And that's what we have recorded here in Matthew 8. That the, the centurion came. So this is an urgent situation. Can you imagine having three groups of, uh, two groups of people ahead of you? Then, then you're, you're running two because this is the last chance. This guy's going to die. He's going he's gonna to die. And... Um, we, we, have to, we have to do something, and Jesus can, can do this. So it's not, it's not too uh, startling to imagine through groups of people coming. What is startling is the manner that the centurion came to Jesus, the humility that he came to Jesus. He came imploring him, saying, Lord. He calls him Lord at least two times. He's begging him. This is a high-ranking military official. He's begging Jesus. This is, this is just a very stark situation. Um, this, is, this would be shocking to the Jewish audience. Uh, he's a Gentile, and Jesus is taking time. He just took some time with a leper, and the leper, if you, if you look back, the leper said, if you're willing, 
you can make me clean. He doesn't even ask him to clean him. He says, hey, you're able. Jesus, you're able to clean me. And here the centurion, in a very similar way, says he implored him. He said, Lord, my servant's lying paralyzed at home. He just states the facts. Here's the situation, Jesus. Here's the situation. He just states the facts. We aren't even given his title. We're given his title. We aren't given his name. We don't know who he is. Um, we just know his concern and his manner of approaching. And then what did Jesus do? In verse 7, he says, I'll come and heal him. I'll come right now. Let's go. This, this change, change course, you know, we're going to Capernaum anyway. Well, here we go. Let's go, let's go and heal him. He's lying at home. We'll, we'll come and heal him. Um, well, this is, this is also very interesting because he was a Gentile, just like the Syrophoenician woman that we studied a few weeks, weeks ago. What did Jesus say when she made a request to Jesus? Do you remember? There's no mention here about him being a Gentile, no mention here about any condemnation, nothing like that, no, nothing. It's just, let's go, let's go. You ask, let's go. He's making it very clear he's willing to associate with Gentiles, with this Gentile. And he's making it clear, Jesus is making it clear that he cares for this servant. He cares for this centurion situation. He cares. He desires to help. And he wants to use his ability to help. By way of application, uh, is there anyone in your life that you need to seek out and help? I mean, is, is there anyone... Um, Man, if you just look at the riches that we've been lavished in Christ, um, we have so much that we can, we can help others with um, physically and spiritually. If you even think of those in our congregation that maybe aren't here or are ill, there are some that need, we need to meet with. Even this week, we need to go, go take care of, right, in our congregation. I think of the Evans, you know. Um, we need to go visit them. They would love a visit from, from each of us. Uh, others in our in our body that need need someone to come alongside. What about what about those even outside of our our um, church? What about neighbors or friends or coworkers um, who have physical needs that we can meet? And maybe those are turned to opportunities for discipleship, even for opportunities for the gospel. Um, what about spiritual needs? I mean. There are tons of people in each of our lives that the Lord has strategically placed there for us to start that process of making disciples. It's the first step is, is living out the gospel and sharing the gospel, right, with one another. Um, there, there are people that are going to perish without our, our um, involvement in their lives. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, this, this, think of those people and this, take action even this week. Uh, the next progression in this narrative is startling. We looked at the servant's plight. Now we're looking at the Savior's faith, the Savior's faith. This is, this is amazing because he says, he says um, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. So he confesses. He then states his faith. He then makes a statement about Jesus' authority. So first, I'm not worthy. This is an incredible attitude. He's saying, I'm not important. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve for you to come into my house. Some have thought that this is um, just the centurion saying, Jesus, I don't want you to come into my house because I'm a Gentile. 
you're a Jew, you're going to become unclean. You come into my house, you're going to be unclean, I don't want that to happen. And they actually look at the statement before by Jesus as a question. And they say, they say, um, let's see, Lord, I'm not worthy. Okay, so the verse before that in verse 7, where it says, I'll come right now. Um, they see that as, shall I come? Shall I come to your house? And he says, no, 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 you shouldn't come to my house because you're going to become unclean. I would just, come on. The guy, Jesus just touched a leper. You know, like he just touched a leper. And he made the leper clean. Did he become unclean? Jesus is unclean now. No, like the leper became clean, right? So if Jesus went into the guy's house, what would happen to his house? It'd become clean, right? Yeah, is Jesus in your house? Is your house clean? That's a question, right? If Jesus will clean your house. If he comes in, boom, Jesus will clean you from the inside out. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. No, this is humility. This is unworthiness of this military officer coming to Jesus and bowing before him. It can be likened to John the Baptist in John 127 when he says, he says, the one who comes after me, he has the, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, right? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to even untie a sandal. So that, it's that unworthiness. He sees, I, I can't even have you come into my house because I'm unworthy of that. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to even untie your sandal, Jesus, because because of who you are, your authority. You are God in the flesh. You are God in the flesh. In the words of Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon said it this way, had the centurion's roof been heaven itself, it could not have been worthy to come under by him who was almighty and who was the almighty word of the Father. The centurion then expresses his faith. He says, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Just say it. It's a statement of faith. He sees that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, even control over space and time. I mean, this was not the age at this time of Skype, right, of instant message and all these things. He couldn't pull Jesus on his phone and say, hey, uh, Jesus, just look right here at my servant. See him right there? Can you just... You know, can you do the thing? It's kind of like we're there. Can you heal him? You know, through. No, he just, Jesus, you're here. He's there. It's fine. Can you just say the word? You have authority to do this. You have authority over space, time, over illness, over disease. Um, he sees that Jesus, Jesus has the authority. Is this how we approach Jesus? Is this how we approach the Lord when we come to him in prayer? Do we come to him? based on his promises, and, and say, Lord, this is what you promised, and we trust you. I trust you. You're going to do it. I cast my cares to you. I'm praying this way, and you're going to do it. I trust you. Is that how we come to Jesus? This is amazing that this, this Gentile comes with this, this understanding. This is how we're to pray, with humble respect, with unwavering faith. Jesus has authority over sickness, over nature, over difficult situations, over difficult people, over hardness of heart, Jesus has authority over all of those things. The list could go on and on, right? We can trust him. In each of our situations, we can trust him. And we can pray to him and we can cast our cares to him. What are you struggling with in your heart today? There's some things that you need to cast to Jesus, that you need to trust him and, and, and give to him today. Um, think of James 1. When you pray, pray without doubting. Um, you need to ask with the right motives. This is, this is your opportunity today um, to just take 
this picture of the centurion and apply it to your life. Um, the centurion, he continues by giving a personal illustration. This is an argument from lesser to greater. He says, I'm a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, he goes, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. The centurion's authority came through the ranks, and ultimately it came from the emperor himself, from Caesar. He had the ability to speak on behalf of Caesar because he was a Roman soldier, and he understood that. He also then, in the latter part of verse 9, do you see that where he changes a little bit, and he says, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Well, as, as one that was a master of slaves, he could say whatever he wanted, and nobody... He had ultimate authority in that situation. If, if his slave disobeyed him, he could have his slave killed even if he wanted to because he had ultimate authority. So not only does, is the centurion stating that Jesus has delegated authority, delegated authority from God, but that Jesus has ultimate authority by himself. He has both. He has both. D.A. Carson, the theologian, he has uh, some help here. It's significant that there's no recorded evidence at this point that Jesus had performed a healing miracle at a distance and by his word alone. That's, that's profound. But what else is profound is the centurion's thinking. And Carson goes on and he says, um, precisely because Jesus was under God's authority, he was vested with God's authority so that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus was to defy God and Jesus' word must therefore be vested with God's authority and is able to heal sickness. Jesus then, then transitions to the last part of our, our, um, our, 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 our narrative here. He, so we've looked at the, sermons, the servant's plight. Then we looked at the soldier's faith. Now we go to the Savior's action. Jesus Jesus doesn't doesn't just hear that and go on with life. He he marveled. He marveled. This was a jaw dropper. Jesus said, "Whoa, like wait a second. He was amazed. He was astonished. He wondered. All throughout the gospels, people are amazed about Jesus. In Matthew 28, 7:28, just a few verses before, the crowd was amazed at Jesus' teaching. And this is the only place that we're told that Jesus is amazed by Matthew. Um, Matthew tells us, oh, Jesus is amazed here. He's amazed. Calvin explains, Jesus wondered, wonder cannot apply to God, because it arises out of what is unexpected and what is new but it might exist in Christ. For he had clothed himself with our flesh and with human affections. Why was he amazed? He was amazed because of the centurion's faith. He'd been amazed, many, and he will be amazed throughout the Gospels by lack of faith, right? By those in Israel that did not have faith, that God's chosen people did not have faith. He, he said to those who were following Truly I said to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So, can you imagine, okay, it's kind of like this. Is anybody a tennis fan? Wimbledon's happening, right? So Wimbledon, okay, so it's kind of like a conversation, um, tennis match conversation. So the, the centurion comes to Jesus and implores him, right? Jesus says, I'll come. Pew, hits it back. The centurion says, 
just kind of a power, a power hit, right? I'm not saying this guy, but he does like a threefold, no Jesus, you don't need to come, I'm not worthy, and second, second, you just need to say the word, and third, I'm a man under authority. Boom, power hit, right? Jesus doesn't hit it back, he actually turns to the crowd and hits into the crowd. Okay, can you imagine? Boom, he hits right into the crowd. And he addresses the crowd. He, does, he's, he just puts the centurion on hold. It's just, just okay, we're, we're, okay, you're on hold. I need to address these guys. Because this crowd that's following me, they, they, this is amazing. What just happened is amazing. And he's addressing us too. He's saying, guys, don't miss this. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Don't miss this. What did Jesus not want us to miss? He's saying, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That's emphatic. There's no one. There's no one in Israel that has this kind of faith. If you remember, this, this, is, um, this is amazing in contrast to so many that do not have faith throughout the Gospels. Um, this man had built a synagogue. This man had done so much, but it was just his faith. It was living out his faith. It, he had been transformed by God. But Jesus doesn't end here. He continues, and he continues with a prophecy. He gives a prophecy. And right here, this is, this is an amazing prophecy in verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. And this is actually the focus of this miracle story. This is the focus right here, verses 10 and 11. He says, he says that the eternal banquet of heaven, which to this point in your Bibles, right here, to this point, it had been thought that it was only for Jews. Oh, this is only for Jews, with the patriarchs, with, with Abraham. This is just for Jews. Jesus says, no, this is not just for Jews. This is going to be for who? Those from many, from east and from west. This is the highest honor imaginable for a Jewish believer. This, these words that Jesus uses, east and west, this would have piqued their, their attention from the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of verses. In Psalm 107, verse 2, it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When he is redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. The redeemed of the Lord. And Jesus is applying this to Gentiles. In Isaiah 43, 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. and From the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. That's pretty amazing, right? This is applying to Gentiles. Jesus is saying, calling them sons. He's calling Gentiles, uh, those that have been created for his glory, they've been called by his name. This is now you and me. This is who we are in Christ. We've been called by his name. Those promises are ours now. 
That's, that's amazing. It's an amazing promise. It's an amazing promise. Um, this, this began, this began um, in those coming from foreign nations. Do you remember at Pentecost in um, Acts 2? There were so many different, in verse 11, so 2, 9 through 11, you can read that on your own, but, but it, it just itemizes all these different people. These folks were the first ones that went back, and they, they were taking the gospel back as soon as they were saved. And then it went viral through the disciples, right, through the disciples and through, um, through the apostles, through just regular believers getting saved, and they, would, they went out and the gospel went out as they followed the great commission of Jesus. And that's exactly what we're called to do today. This is this banquet that Jesus is talking about. This is the great marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned in Revelation 17. This is an amazing, amazing event that if you belong to Christ, you will be a part of this. That will be a glorious day, a glorious day. We're commanded to make disciples. And this kind of goes back to the last question. Are, are you making disciples like this in your life? Can you think of a few people in your life that you're making disciples and you're helping them make disciples and to make disciples? This is what we're called to do. And this is just a normal part of being a believer. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Um, in our text, Jesus doesn't end there. I mean, it would have been really nice because that would have been uh, on a happy note. You know, Disney story, happy note. But that's not what he does. It's not what he does. He makes a huge contrast. He says, but, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But hold your horses. This is a shocker. This is a big deal. This is, this is something that it would have taken the audience, the Jewish audience back. Because now he's talking about them. He's saying Gentiles are going to come from all over. They're going to come. But the sons of the kingdom, you guys, are going to be cast out. You're going to be cast out. Notice the detailed description of what's going to happen to those who are being cast into the darkness. This, this darkness is, um, it's, it's, a, it's out, out. It's like, it's like being cast out, being actively cast out by God. And it's not just out, but it's like out, out. It's like they're... They're definitely out. They're definitely separated by, from God. That's what's going to happen to those who do not belong to Christ. They're going to definitely be separated from God. They're also going to be in darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. These are those who thought they would go to heaven because of the deeds of someone else, because they were trusting the deeds of their parents or, or because they inherited faith, can inherit faith, this is not true faith. Um, they were thinking, maybe, maybe I'll go to heaven because um, of someone else's works or because of my works. No, no, you won't. We can't go to heaven because of our works or because of someone else's works. We can only go to heaven through Christ and through our faith personally in Christ, just like the centurion had. That's the only way that anyone is saved because our sin is against the holy God against the holy God. If you lack faith in Jesus alone for salvation, you will forfeit your place in heaven. You will go to hell. You will. And you will eternally pay for your sin because you've sinned against an eternal and holy God. 
cast out, this is actively being thrown out. It's an extreme contrast with the banquet, the beautiful light and beauty that's going to be in the banquet of heaven. Um, and you can imagine in Revelation where it talks about streets of gold. I mean, it's just, the, there's no darkness there, right? The sun's always on, right? Always on. There's brightness. This is, this is the exact opposite. Um, I, I, one time I was with a group and we were hiking in caves in the desert. And they had these lava caves that you can go in. And we were deep in this lava cave and they had us turn off our lights, which was terrifying because you turn off the light and it's like, I mean, you, I've never been, I mean, that's like dark, dark. Like you can't see anything. I mean, you, put, you slap yourself. You can't see it coming. It's so dark, <laughs> right? So, so dark. And, and it, was, it was terrifying. Like, and like, man, if I lost my light right now, I mean, you would just be wandering around here forever. That's what hell's going to be like. You, they can't see. We're totally lost, totally, totally in darkness. And then it says weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, the, the, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, this is totally opposite again from heaven. In heaven, Jesus will wipe our tears away. We won't have pain anymore. It will be gone. In hell, those who go to hell will be equipped with bodies that will have pain forever. You will have pain, and you will have suffering, and you will even gnash your teeth. Gnashing your teeth, it's, it's like when a woman gives birth, gnashing, gnashing the teeth, you, you, know, you know, in the movies, you know, give a, give a stick or give an apple something so you don't gnash your teeth. These folks will not have anything to stop their gnashing of their teeth. And some people say, oh, this is just hyperbole. This isn't really how. Well, then why does Jesus keep saying this throughout the Gospels? Why does he keep saying this same exact phrases? Um, this is the same exact phrase. Uh, in Matthew 13, he says, um, I will throw them in a furnace of fire, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 22. Bind him, hand and foot, throw him in the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew 24, the master of that slave will come on day he did not expect. I already does not know. He'll cut him in pieces, assign him in a place of the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25 Throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a description of hell directly from Jesus, and we should take it seriously. Just like his original hearers should take it seriously, we should take it seriously as well. This is also described in the Gospels as a place where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, a place of darkness, separation from God, intense pain and suffering. It's, it's a real place. Hell is a real place. Um, it's a horrible place, a place that you do not want to go. So your sin is against God. It's horrible. If you die in your sin, you will go to hell. But Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a perfect death, and he rose perfectly, bearing your sin, so that you would not have to pay for your sin. And you can turn to him right now today. You can turn to him. You can be rescued from hell. Uh, you can live a life starting now, that can be lived for eternity, now and for eternity, according to his righteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life and death so that you would not have to suffer this, this uh, separation from God. And, um, yeah, it, it, this is just something I think we should just take seriously and kind of step back and think about because um, these people that heard Jesus' words they, they thought they were going to be at the banquet. 
they totally thought, I mean, this was shocking. It's like, wow, are you kidding me? Like, we're Jews. Of course we're going to be in the banquet. Some of us think that, and, it's, and we think that for the wrong reasons, and our faith isn't in Christ, and we need to make sure that our faith is only in Christ alone for salvation. Well, we have one verse left in our text. It's what you've all been waiting for. In verse 13, the servant actually was healed. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. How was the servant healed? By a word, just like this, the centurion asked Jesus. Do you remember how the centurion explained? I say to this one, go, and he goes. Do you remember that? That's what Jesus says. He says, go, go. And as soon as I said, go, I'm sure that right then, go. He's healed. He's healed. Boom. Go. He said, go to him. He probably said, go to the illness. Boom. Go. It's done. Just with a word. This is the same word that, that um, brought creation into existence, right? The same word we're, we're healed by from our sin. Jesus, Jesus said, to tell us die. It's finished. It's amazing. Um, this, is, this is our Savior. This is the one we get to treasure, that we get to know. Um, Jesus told the centurion, he told the centurion um, to go. Matthew concludes this, this whole miracle narrative almost as an afterthought. It's almost like, oh, by the way, he was healed. By the way, by the way. Um, so the, the, the focus is not on the miracle itself, although this is a miracle narrative. This is actually, this is focusing on the faith of a Gentile and how Gentiles, he's a picture of other Gentiles that would be saved in the future. This was amazing uh, that he, he, a Gentile soldier, no less, was saved. And, and it's actually amazing. If you and I are saved this morning, this is an amazing privilege we have to be saved as well. This is something that shouldn't have happened, but it did happen because of Christ. And, and we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. So praise God that the servant was healed physically, but praise God that the Gentile centurion believed and was healed spiritually. In conclusion, I'd just like to ask you, um, do you cherish your relationship with Jesus? Is it an active, saving faith that you have, like the centurions? Um, or is it just a, like we talked about, is it just an inherited faith, really a no faith? Is it a faith that is based on what somebody else has done? Or is it based on Christ alone? There's many in Los Angeles, many in, in uh, this valley even, that uh, have have a faith that is a fake faith. And um, if that's you today, we, we would like to, like to talk to you about, please don't, don't leave here having a fake faith. But also, for those of you who do know Christ, just, just know those around you that say that they might know Christ, they might not. So make sure you explain the gospel. Make sure you really care for their souls. Make sure you really lead them to Christ. If you truly have saving faith, as we've seen in the scriptures that the centurion had, um, is it a vibrant relationship with the Lord? Is it, is it um, so brother and sister, is it, is it a, uh, a faith that you treasure, that, that you treasure Christ above all? Is that seen through your, your life and is that poured out through your actions? Is that how you spend your time? Is that how you spend your resources, your relationships? Are you treasuring Christ above all else? Um, I would challenge you today to, to ponder that, but then put that into action 
um, and all of us can, can treasure Christ more and more and encourage one and more and more one another to treasure Christ as we see the day approaching when he's going to return, when we'll be in heaven and we'll be treasuring face to face, but it'll be in a different way than we're able to now. So, so I just want to encourage you in that. Um, let's go ahead and, and close in prayer and uh, just thank the Lord for the faith that he's given Lord, thank you so much for uh, this parable today. Um, well, not parable, this, this miracle story. This, this was reality. This is something that really happened. and We're so thankful we got to go back um, thousands of years and see a man of faith that was a Gentile, just like most of us in this room, that had no hope of being saved, but you saved him, and you gave him faith, and he exercised that faith, and we, we just long to also um, follow you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would show us how we can treasure you more every day, how we can love you above all else in our lives, that we can, we can um, seek after you, that we can love you more. We long to treasure you. Thank you for letting us know you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that we might walk in your ways today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.